1: Onyx Hunt provides detailed, color-coded maps with public and private land ownership information. Onyx turns your phone into a fully functional GPS even when cell phone service is not available and gain the confidence to hunt new areas and states. Game wardens are using Onyx to make sure you are hunting in the right spot. Shouldn't you be using Onyx first? Start your free 7-day trial by visiting Google Play and the App Store. This is Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and I use Onyx wish you could fish more anywhere anytime rod geeks a st croix rods partner has developed a forty two inch one-piece travel rod designed and built with the same technology found in st croix rods this travel rod is offered as a kit that comes with the rg-42 rod spinning reel fishing line pliers and tackle tray all in a case with space for your wallet phone and fishing license just grab and go perfect to keep in your pickup car or rv this shorty performs much like a longer rod but is compact enough for easy storage and for on the go use. Make this the summer you fish more. Rodgeeks.com. GuideFitter.com. GuideFitter, bridging you to the outdoors while providing a quality platform for guides and outfitters for you to select from. GuideFitter is the best place to get discounts on gear if you're an outdoor professional. As a game warning, I'm a member of the Outdoor Government Program which has over 80 quality brands to get discounts from. It's free to join. Yes, free to join. And all you need to do is prove that you're an active outdoor government employee. There are all kinds of products available. Apparel, boots, archery equipment, optics, backpacks, cameras, watches, ammo, anything, you name it. And while you're there, check out the articles, information, and stories that you'll be inspired from. So before you head out to work in the outdoors or start your next outdoor adventure, check out guidefitter.com and get discounts on your everyday or every so often outdoor equipment. This is Game Warden Wayne Saunders for Guidefitter. Wireless Partners building the first net cellular network for AT&T in New Hampshire, Maine and Vermont to ensure first responders can always communicate in emergency situations so you know help is on the way when you need it. Wireless Partners is partnering for success with communities local and state government, local business, and visitors. Wireless partners building cellular networks for you. This podcast is brought to you by Maine Operation Game Thief. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but I rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Episode 19, Dave Lowen, Montana Fish and Wildlife, Chief of Law Enforcement. We're going to listen to Dave and I chat about Montana, and you're going to hear his passion for his state, for the resource, and for the Game Wardens. You're going to hear some unique things that that Dave's doing in Montana to combat illegal activity, whether it's how you purchase your license. You're going to hear the passion when he talks about Montana TIP, the program where you can turn in a poacher in Montana. He's very passionate about it because he's seen it work. And we have two nationwide. If you have a TIP program, you have our Operation Game Thief program, that's your way to report and help out the game wardens. And if you don't belong to International Wildlife Crime Stoppers, you should. You should go to wildlifecrimestoppers.org, and for $35, you can participate as a member. Maybe not participate in it, but you can be part of the solution. You can be part of that organization. You can stand up to protect wildlife, which is so important. But before that happens, I want to tell you a little story that you might find comical. I do. About three weeks ago, I was feeling sick, cold, so I took some NyQuil. I went to bed early, and I woke up to yelling, screaming, dogs barking, and it felt like it was right in my bedroom. And you know, when you take that NyQuil and you, you feel like that and you just, am I having one of those dreams, that NyQuil dream that, you know, just really sucks you in. And so I actually started getting up and started waking up. And it, again, it was just so loud. And right in our bedroom, we have a big window right beside the bed and it's a big bay window and it's got curtains on it. So I pulled the curtains aside. And there on the corner of my deck, which is right off that window, is my son yelling. My German Shepherd is standing in front of my son, barking, and probably four or five feet in front of him is a big bull moose with his head lowered. And Andrew's screaming at the dog, and his dog was running around as well, and he grabbed his dog and pulled his dog in there. But Andrew was heading into the hot tub, so he's standing there in his shorts. The dog's barking at this moose, and my wife is screaming in the background for Andrew to get out of there because she doesn't want Andrew to get hurt, and Andrew's not going to leave without the dogs. So this is quite the standoff, and my German Shepherd is just proud as proud can be because he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's protecting the house. And he's just, he almost got a smile on his face as he's barking at this big moose. And this moose has just got his head down, antlers showing. And this is all occurring probably 10 feet from my window and 10 feet from my kid. <laughs> so I get, I jump out, I grab a pair of shorts and uh, I go around. And by the time I get there, Andrew's already got both dogs in the door and my wife's happy. It took me a little time to get orientated due to the NyQuil. But uh, that, that was a story that I woke up to, and who knows even know what a time it was. Andrew, on his way to the hot tub, opens the door, and it all begins. I thought it was pretty comical. That's what you get for a living where moose live. And that was an experience I'll be able to share with you guys and be able to share with a lot more people in the future. So, Anyways, we're going to go to Montana now. We're going to hang out with uh, Dave Lowen. We're going to hear the stories from Montana and what's going on there. So thank you for listening to Warden's Watch Please share with your friends, pre-share on Facebook, like me, Instagram, all of that helps support Wardens Watch, and I really appreciate each and every listener out there for your sport, for your game wardens, and for your natural resources around the world. I got to tell you, every time I think about the Montana or I say the word, I just get excited because it just in my mind, it's like, Next to Alaska, they're probably on equal terms, but it's like the most awesome place to be a game warden is is, is what I can imagine.
2: It is, and actually, we're better than Alaska. So,
1: <laughs> no, I, uh, I love
2: that you said that. <laughs> no, it's it's an incredible place, and happy to be there. And you know, it's it's got a nickname, the last best place, and uh, that's exactly what it is. It's just an incredible place to 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 be, and it's an incredible place to be a game warden. And uh, I've cherished every
1: every day I've spent in the field. And the species you have of wildlife is so diverse. Um, do you, Do you have a favorite species?
2: Well, growing up in Southwest Montana, um, you know, I've always.
1: Can, can you describe Southwest Montana to me? Because is it? I, I just I, I think of the, just the big mountains, the the gorgeous terrain. Is that the same in the Southwest?
2: D- that's it. Okay.
1: Um, yeah, Western Montana. I grew up, you know, in the
2: southern part of that that mm-hmm. area, and uh, primarily did did uh, elk hunting. Okay. Mule deer hunting, some white tail hunting. And you grew up doing that? Grew up doing that and um my my favorite uh and still is, is uh, elk hunting. Okay. Obviously it's it a little tougher as you get older. The mm-hmm. knees the knees aren't as good as they used to be, but uh that's that's what I grew up doing. Um that's what what my passion is and that what that's what led me to uh you know, conservation law enforcement is um just that passion for the outdoors and the passion for for um you know doing law enforcement and being in being outside I, I could have gone down that road of you know being a deputy sheriff or being mm-hmm. a police officer or something like that but I, I just had this passion for being in the outdoors and wanted to be involved in conservation law enforcement and uh as soon as a uh, uh, montana game warden hit on my radar screen i thought that's what i need to do for a living and uh, i pursued it passionately and uh, been doing it ever since
1: uh, and did you prep yourself i know you had some time other places
2: yeah i I uh, I spent some time in the Coast Guard, so I graduated from high school down in uh, southwest Montana. Butte, Montana is where I grew up. Okay. And uh, graduated from there and uh, immediately went into the Coast Guard. Loved it. Loved every minute of it. Uh, spent time. From in-
1: Montana to the Coast Guard. It was culture shock, man. It, it had it was to culture be. culture
2: shock. <laughs> I, uh, I did four years in Southern California doing search and rescue and drug interdiction. I was 18, 19 years old. I was incredible. I had a, had a great time, but I always wanted to get back home, so... uh you know, I did my, my, did my four years uh, in the Coast Guard. Ended up coming back home to Montana and was still struggling what to do. Didn't know right. where, you know, what was my niche, what did got I want to you do. your legs and you took them away, kind of. Yeah, and. yeah. So I, I ended up, uh, you know, doing a few odd jobs here and there. And I decided, uh, you know, I need to get a college degree. So I, I built up a little college fund while I was in the Coast Guard, you know, mm-hmm. through their, their program. And uh, so I went to college. And uh, I got a degree in, uh, in teaching. Uh, I got a teaching degree and uh, majored in biology. And uh figured, well, that's probably where I'll end up is uh, being a teacher. Mm. Um, but I always had that. And little, let's face it, you are. True. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's come in handy several I, I times. I bet it's come in extremely handy. Times. But I always had that that little uh, you know, itch in the back of my brain that says, what about that game warden job that you wanted when you were a little kid? You know, and, Yeah, I kept calling. Yeah, and I didn't know if I'd get there or not. And um, I was satisfied with where I was. And all of a sudden, I, and I was a late starter. I didn't start into this. I, you know, I don't think you were satisfied. No, I wasn't. I wasn't. And and I didn't get started as a a game ward until my uh, early 30s. So it took me that long to get there, and I thought, it's either now or never. Mm -hmm. And so I applied, and I put everything I had into it, and I did well, and I I got accepted, and uh, that's where I've been. So uh, loving every minute of it since.
1: Yeah, and, you know, I always think the years I began, that's, those are always the ones I go back to because the, the joy of it. I know you're chief now, and that's a whole different set of challenges. But, you know, I remember your, your first day with your cruiser out there by yourself. It's just... I a,
2: remember, you know, we talked about culture shock when I went to California in the Coast Guard, and that was. That was mm-hmm. culture shock, being from, <laughs> you know, coming from the mountains of Montana and uh, going down there. My first duty station as a game warden here in Montana was up in uh, Glasgow, northeast Montana, Um I didn't even know it existed. You know, it was just a remote location. You want to talk about culture shock. Take somebody from the mountains on the west side, stick them Uh in the flatlands on the east. And uh I thought when I got up there, I thought I have just made the biggest mistake of my life by signing up to do this job because I cannot handle it up here. So that was more remote than where you were. Absolutely. It was uh just a small rural community. And I thought, you know, I really couple hundred people in the community? uh, Yeah, I think there's there's yeah, a few thousand people in, in, okay. the, in the county itself, but it's in a, real, sm- it's a yep. real small community, mm-hmm. and I'd just never been there before, and uh, I thought this, I don't know if this is right for me or not, and maybe I made a mistake, maybe I'm not cut out to be a game warden, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Started working, and uh, went through the first winter up there, and uh, was pretty sure that I had screwed up.
1: Yeah, winters, winters are tough. <laughs> That's a tough
2: winter up there, yeah. but I spent three years up there, uh-huh. and it was the best three years of my career. Because uh, I learned so much up there. I had fantastic field training officers. I had fantastic mentors up there. Um, everything about it. I learned
1: so much up there. And sometimes, maybe you'll agree with me, maybe not, sometimes it's about the people that you're working with and not where you're doing it.
2: Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And, and I became ingrained in the community up there. I mm-hmm. love the community. And um, met my wife up there. And, and
1: uh, That's funny. I met my wife in my patrol my first patrol area, right. too.
2: So it was, it was really great, and... Um, you know still to this day i look forward to revisiting you know going mm. up there for for a meeting or something else that we have to go up there for i really like getting back to that but i learned so much in that first 3 years um being in that small rural community that i carry with me today and the people that i worked with up there and my the the field training officers that i had at the time i stay in contact with them um they have a lot to offer mm. you know and uh i just i just really uh, that that was that was a real crucial time in in my life and in my career was uh, that first three years being in that remote location, learning how to do the job, and uh, I, I don't think I could have gotten that anywhere else. So right. I'm real thankful for that.
1: Yeah, and, and you know when I hear you talk that you know they have a lot of their field training officers still have a lot of input. I can still see you still rely on those foundational game wardens to to help you in your your, your tough job as being the chief of law enforcement.
2: Oh, absolutely. Just because you're the chief doesn't mean you know everything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, believe me the the warden's out there I'll tell you that uh and uh it it takes it takes a team effort to get this job done and and you have to rely on those people that have been around a whole lot longer than I've been around um doing the job a lot longer than I've been doing it um I rely on them right and I think we have to uh it's it's uh not anything that that I can do by myself it takes a team and uh we're going to we're going to disagree on some things every now and then. we got to make some tough decisions every right. now and then. But you need that team effort, and I rely on these people to uh, you know, give me the input and uh,
1: the information that I need to try to make the best decisions that we can make. Nope, that, that's very well said. Yeah. So so you were sergeant as well? Does that, that, that mean a patrol move as well? Yeah, so I
2: ended up coming from northeast Montana um, as a field warden. and I ended up coming down to the state's capital in Helena, Montana, as also a field warden. It was just a a lateral transfer at the time, and uh, it was going from a rural district... To a, to a very populated district wow. in, in Helena, which I I really enjoyed. But it was a different it was a different um, environment to work in.
1: A lot more complaints, too, huh? A lot
2: more complaints, a lot more people, a lot more recreation, just a lot more of everything. Mm-hmm. Three three really big lakes right there outside of town, five, ten minutes. Your Europe. Coast
1: Guard experience came in very good for that, I would yeah, imagine. Yeah, that
2: came in very handy. That was one of the draws mm-hmm. for, for me was to get close to the water. I, I just right. like being on the water. Mm-hmm. So I ended up being a field warden there for you know, several years and um, then an opening uh uh came open in uh, Helena as a for for a sergeant position I applied for that and and got that so I was then supervising the uh the Helena area and some some of the surroundings. so I had a handful of wardens that, that I supervised and um, did that for several years and uh I think that probably that was one of the best jobs I've ever had is being that first line supervisor being that sergeant mm-hmm. um being able to mentor you know, new guys, new guys, and being able to still learn from the older guys, and just being able to help and see guys make progress on cases, and help point them in the right direction, and just kind of having your fingers in a little bit of everything that's going on, and um,
1: quality. You, you, you people. build up a little pride in that. You do, yeah, you especially do. as you see them progress from you know, the, as uh, Eddie Henderson called it, the baby game warden yeah. to the, the, the guy that's, yes. you know, progressed. And I think, you know, five years, he puts a pretty salty game warden on, you know, being trained correctly. Right. And, and it makes you want to go, you know, pat him
2: on the head and say, you oh, know, that's <laughs> well, that's then. awesome. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so you get to kind of live vicariously through them when they're doing a You're good right.
1: Job. Their cases are your cases. They're yeah. calling you. They're bouncing things off you. It's really they're getting cool. your input.
2: Yeah, and I think one of the best things about that sergeant job that I had is uh, it was a remote sergeant position. Um by remote I mean it wasn't attached to or in the in a headquarters facility. So I was in a in a in a separate office facility with um my uh, wardens down there. So not all of the sergeants are that lucky. A lot of the sergeants are attached into a headquarters office somewhere. Mm. So I didn't have to
1: suffer through that. <laughs> but you now do was, you do now. But now as the chief, yeah, so <laughs> Exactly. Funny how things change. Oh, it is, it is, <laughs> and and I think it's good that, that guys come up through the ranks, learn those positions as they go, and and become chiefs because you, you bring so much experience with you. Every chief, uh, every fishing game chief that I've interviewed, everybody they know brings that with them, and it it makes for a better agency.
2: It it does. You have to have, in in my opinion you have to have that ground level experience. Mm. You, you have to have been there and done that. So when you're making decisions, a lot of times when I'm making a decision, <clears throat> one of the first things I think about is how is this going to affect the field? If I was still in the field, what would I think about this decision? Mm-hmm. And I struggle with that sometimes because I know I have to make a decision, but I also know from the field perspective, it's not either going to be popular or, you know, it's not going to be, um, maybe the most efficient thing to do or, but it still has to be done. So I do struggle with that, but I don't think that you can make those decisions unless you've been on the ground and worked. And I think that my, you know, 15 plus years or more out on the ground um, really laid a good solid foundation for me to be able to do this job that I have now. Mm -hmm. So without that, and I've heard horror stories in other States where, you know, maybe their chief of law enforcement or their colonel or, or someone like that is uh You know, appointed or picked Mm. from someplace else, that doesn't have any of that 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 experience, and and I I struggle with that too because I think how can you possibly, you know, really understand what's going on on the ground, right? Unless you've been out there, exactly.
1: You know, and some of those guys that appointed are smart enough to take experienced people and draw that experience in and do good work with other people's experience. But yeah, they're, they're, it's, it's, it's tough. It's hard. I would agree to, to put somebody in that position. You have to be a special person to be effective and uh, do a good job for the wardens.
2: So. You do. And, and I think that, you know, in particular, having grown up, not grown up, but having cut my teeth in uh, eastern Montana for those first three years in that community that, you know, uh, in a place that I'd never experienced before, then transitioned to a more populated area. I just I got a pretty broad Experience level that helps me understand what's going on on the ground. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean I know everything that's going on out there, but I've experienced a lot, so I can I can communicate and commiserate with the uh, the wardens that are out there and uh, try to get the best the best results and the best decisions that we can get. Mm-hmm. Did you grow up with horses? I did not. Okay, I don't. Ha- I, that's 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 one thing I did not grow up with experience or experience with was uh, any type of uh, horsework. So my exposure to horses and any type of livestock. Um wasn't until um, I got this job. And Montana game wardens use horses, right? We do. We have a lot of backcountry areas in western Montana. Um, we don't – so some of the game wardens use them quite a bit more than than, than other wardens, um, depending on, on what kind of backcountry they have. We help the Forest Service a lot with what's what they have going on in the backcountry. Mm-hmm. So our wardens and Forest Service LEOs will work together a lot on gotcha. going into the backcountry and doing different things. So we do spend time in the backcountry. Um Especially up in northeast, northwest Montana, um, western Montana, we do. But you know, we've used horses all over the state. We used to use horses a lot down in uh, the Yellowstone area, um, mm-hmm. in the Gardner area, um, and uh, so so we do. We do a lot of packing. We pack uh, you know, a lot. And, of, and
1: you had to learn all that.
2: You got you to learn all that. Some yeah. some wardens, but it's like any district. If your district is a water district, you right. got to learn how to drive a boat. Yep. If you have got a horse district, you're going to learn how to ride a, ho- a horse or a mm-hmm. mule. Um, so it all depends on where you're at. Not all of our wardens, de- definitely not all of our wardens are, uh, horse people. <laughs> um, and some of them, um, wouldn't want it any other way. Right. And they're good at it. And, yes. um, that's the kind of people we want in those backcountry districts. Yeah.
1: So, yeah. Yeah. Like I get seasick. So the coast guard wouldn't have been for me. The Navy wasn't for me. Yeah, so. I, got, I used to get uh. sick all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i i could handle a horse i i grew up around horses so but so that that kind of uh you know that picture of dry riding a horse in montana as a game warden is just i I just picture that i just picture that is incredibly awesome oh yeah yeah Uh, those
2: uh the the wardens that we have doing backcountry work or, or any any kind of horse work um you know they they love it, mm-hmm. They love it. It's a tool. It's a tool that we have to right. use in some of the places that we have to we have to work. Have and, to get there, you got to ride a horse. Um, you know we've got uh, wardens that we've hired that uh, don't have any snowmobile experience. Mm. But you've got to learn how to ride a snowmobile. Right. You don't have to be an expert, you know, right. in snowmobile work. Or we don't expect you to be a you know a, 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 a professional rodeo cowboy mm-hmm. either. But uh, you've got to learn to use the tools. Right. And those
1: are all aspects that you guys train in as well.
2: All of these things we train in. Right. And then you specialize, it, specialize in it if it's in your district.
1: Mm-hmm. So Great. And then when you need resources to, for that specialized, you bring in these people. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, um, yeah. That, that's pretty neat. The whole horse thing I just find fascinating and, uh, you know, nostalgic and, you know. Uh, expensive e- expensive yes i'm, I'm <laughs> sure that's a wicked expense for the agency yeah it, you know yeah. vet bills i mean i think of the canines that it, what it cost canines cost us i can't imagine what horses would cost you
2: sure and then um that's one thing that we just started this year too or last year is
1: we have two canine units nice uh, any specific breed that you're using
2: uh, i believe they're both breeds of oh, i think one's a dutch shepherd shepherd i think and the other one's a, a german shepherd They're scent dogs. You know that's what they're for. Article search. They do a fantastic job. Mm -hmm. Uh, They train our two K nine officers are top notch. Nice. They train their dogs. Work with them. They're certified. We've send them to Idaho to train. I don't. We just went to. I think we just went to Colorado. Okay. Uh, But they uh, they um, they re up every uh, every year. Recertify every year. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're seeing if it's a pilot program now. Yeah. We're going to see if we're going to expand it. Right. Um, or at least at a minimum, make it a permanent program. Nice. Cause yeah. I'm, I'm fully behind it. I think that, uh, you know, what, what we've seen those, those canine units do, those dogs are just incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, the, our, our guys have them, our, our handlers have them trained in article location, scent, um, detection, human, uh, yeah, they can track humans. Um, all kinds of different things that they're they're doing in there. They're, they're assisting other agencies. We've gone in and helped police departments look for firearms, Mm -hmm. um, sheriff's offices, highway patrol. We've, we've helped all these agencies with, with our canine unit. So the word is out that we have them and, and uh, that they're they're good and they're, they're very good
1: because when, when they're good, word gets out. They're very good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you know the good dogs, the bad dogs, you know who to call and who not to call. Exactly. That's that's part of being a police officer, sheriff, Mm -hmm. uh, trooper, or a game warden. you you, already medically knows those things. And when you're good, you get called all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, these guys
2: get called. And you know, they they would like to be called even more. They they just love what they do, so.
1: Yeah, no. In cases, I mean... Big game cases, and I, I don't ever want to put anything on the fish because I always forget fish. But I love I love making fish cases too. But oh, yeah, any big game cases that that stick out in your your mind that you could share with us? Sure, sure. Uh, big game cases are always sexy, as I say. Yeah, exactly. You're right. The fish yeah. aren't so sexy. No, they're not. They're not. Uh, <laughs> they're just as important. But yeah, yeah,
2: um, yeah. In particular, we uh, I had a case um, all a few years back. I was working in the Helena area. And I received this call about uh an elk and this is this is in January. Yeah, so obviously elk season is over and uh folks have called and said, hey, There's this there's an elk up here that's head cut off. Every game warden in the country
3: has gotten that call, you know, one way or another. Mm-hmm. About a headless this or a headless that. Right. Thought, I've okay. never had a headless elk. Well, <laughs> They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
1: I'm, I'm just saying. I've, I've had a headless, a <laughs> lot of other things. Never, never had a headless elk, so, so I'm already jealous. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so I thought, well, this is interesting, um, especially in the area uh, where it was reported. It was reported mm-hmm. in uh, what we call the Elkhorn Mountains. The Elkhorn Mountains are, is a special-managed hunting district where it's managed particularly to produce large bull elk. These mm-hmm. are trophy-class bull elk uh, with a limited draw opportunity for a license, um, highly coveted, and uh, people that get these, uh, it's a once-in-a-lifetime draw, and it's mm-hmm. it's just really, really important. So when we get a report of a headless elk in the elkhorns, you know, it piques our interest a little bit because— uh, Big elk. And, and it, they're big elk, and everybody knows— the big elk up there and everybody Mm. um that lives in the area drives the area they all know the elk right so everybody's watching all the time everybody know who
1: so they kind of identify because they know that that one is a 10 by 10 oh yeah they they say oh there's there's that such thing as a 10 by 10 is there
2: well there could be it'd be a hell of an elk okay okay (laughs) um so uh you know the, the 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 people you know they pay attention and they know who who drew the permits mm-hmm. and who didn't draw permits? And so they, everybody, it's a it's a very self policed area, right? Which everybody's else? keeping an eye out, right? So when the season comes and goes, that's that's all fine and dandy. Well, here we are in January when we get this call, and the season's gone by now. Season's gone. So um, I roll out there, and uh, sure enough, there's this big elk body laying there, and head's gone, and and it's very, it's it's not real close to homes. So maybe between four or 500 yards away from some surrounding homes. And I thought, this is odd that this elk is laying here without its head, and this is the only call we get was the next day. Mm. You clearly see because there was some snow on it, and I clearly see that it had been there overnight. And uh, so we started looking around and uh, trying to figure out what was going on, and we could see where somebody came in and and, uh, cut the head off, and you could see a little bit of a drag trail where they drug the head to the side of the road, and obviously they got in a vehicle from there and took off. This is this is bizarre. So I started kind of canvassing the area and talking to some people and um, funny enough, the day before, so this is on a Monday I'm mm-hmm. doing this. The day before was Super Bowl Sunday. Mm. So I started thinking, um, was this elk shot during the Super Bowl when everybody was paying attention to the football game? Football, and
1: they, partying, noise, doing, beer, doing
2: snacks. So we were able to kind of deduce that it was shot about the third quarter of the Super Bowl. Wow. Part of the way we figured that out was I put out a press release. Mm-hmm. Press releases are great. I put out a press release and I uh, was looking for anybody that was in the area that day. And uh lo and behold I got a phone call from uh from a from a gentleman and he says, "You know, I was up in that area and Uh, I stopped to look at that elk because it was right on the way, and the elk was just grazing out in this field. He says, I stopped to look at that elk, and he's a photographer, and he was taking Mm -hmm. pictures. Neat. And uh, he says, I saw another guy in a a Jeep there, and they were looking at the elk too, but they didn't look like photographers. They just looked suspicious to him. Mm. And I says, okay, well, why don't you describe that to me? And he says, ah, it was just a Jeep Wrangler, and there was a little sticker in the back window, and I think the the license plate was a themed license plate. It was a Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation license plate. thought, well, that's something. Mm -hmm. That's something. So I thought, how many green Jeep Wranglers can we have in Montana with Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation plates? Maybe I can do some sort of search right. start with that. So I, I ran a search that way, and I got like fifteen thousand returns. wow well, this isn't going to give me any.
1: Anyway. No, <laughs> figures Montana Jeeps. El- yeah, yep. so.
2: We kept just kind of looking. In, in
1: New Hampshire, that would have been uh, probably like one. That would have been it. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so we kept we kept digging on this and waiting for some more tips, and it was starting to go a little bit stale on us here. You know, if you don't get these mm, things within the, the first, first 24, time, it, it starts to get stale. So this was getting stale on us. And one of the uh, wardens that I supervised, he was also an FTO, and he was FTO um a brand-new trainee, and they were down at the river checking some fishermen. And we had talked about this elk case, and they came walking up. Um, the my FTO and and the, and the new warden, they came walking up to the parking area after checking a bunch of fishermen, and they were they were walking through. And the FTO, he stopped, did a double take at the parking lot, and lo and behold, there's a there's a Jeep Wrangler parked in a parking lot. And he remembered talking about this case. He calls me and he said, "Sarge, hey, we got this this vehicle down. This might be your rig. I'm like, ah, What are the chances? Mm. So many of these Jeeps in town mm-hmm. or in the state." So he walks over, and he's looking at it. He's got. He says, it's got a little little sticker in the back window, and it's got Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation plates. I said, well, take a look at the back bumper really close and see if you can see any blood or anything mm. like that. And he goes, yeah, there's some blood on it. Wow. I says, all right, well, we got something here. Let's, mm. let's get the plate. and You guys just get out of there, and then we'll just follow up. So he got the right. plate. So now we had something to work with. Mm-hmm. So we started working with this quite a bit and did the typical investigator stuff and— bunch of background and figured out who owned the vehicle and where they were staying it took us a while to track it down we ended up with enough for a for a search warrant and uh figured out where these folks lived and uh, we uh, took a whole team of wardens we went in there rolled in hot one morning um, before light before sunlight and uh bad thing about it is it was a long straight driveway up to their place so they could see us coming oh wow so I thought well let's just get in there fast and let's just do this mm-hmm. and we you know figure if we hit it early enough we'll catch them in bed-hmm so we get in there early enough Hit the door, uh, knocked on the door. We didn't break the door down. Knocked on right. the door to answer the door. Told them what we were there for. And uh, what I found odd is they were all awake and they were all dressed. Well, that's kind of odd. And what pretty, time did you roll in on uh, was like 5 in the morning. It was pretty early. Yeah, that it was weird. It's pretty early. Yeah. And uh, so uh, pulled everybody out, sat them down, told them what we were there for, swept the building, and uh, started doing the search and uh, went into the closet. Of course, there we were. There, there was the uh, the the antlers for this this big elk, this big trophy elk, they had stuffed in the in the closet of this house. So, that was this overwhelming sense of we put it together, we mm. got this elk, and uh, I want to back up a little bit to to this uh, third quarter of the Super Bowl thing. So, when we were talking to the the photographer that was out there taking pictures that day, he told us what time he was there. So we we looked at the time that he was there, and then we compared that to the football game. And it just came out that it was the third quarter, and I can't remember which game, which Super Bowl, who who was playing in the Super Bowl at the time, but it was an exciting game. The Bulls weren't playing, so. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it turns out that uh, everybody was just paying attention to the football game when this uh, this guy uh, shot this uh, this bull elk out the window of his Jeep with a seven mm, and uh, so we narrowed it down to that to that that third quarter time time frame. So when we found this 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 elk. You know, we put all the pieces together and we were pretty close on exactly what had happened. So they're right. driving down the road and they he had a partner with them and they were going to shoot the elk and they saw the photographer come up. So they pulled the rifle back in mm. and just talked to the photographer a little bit. The photographer drove off, they put the rifle back out. They shot this elk. The shooter jumps out of the rig, runs over to the elk. The guy in the driver's seat takes off with the Jeep. Shooter goes over and cuts the head off of the elk, drags it over. And they hide behind a tree, or he hides behind a tree with the with elk head. The uh, guy driving the Jeep waits for a couple of minutes, comes back down, does a slow roll past this Jeep. Guy just jumps in the Jeep with his elk head. Off they go. Nobody saw anything. Nobody heard anything, and that was it. So to be able to put that together um, was really exciting for me. Mm. You know, I was really happy to do that, And uh, but it wouldn't – It just. I think that shows you the the importance of community involvement because without that guy that was taking the pictures, Mm. if he wouldn't have given us a vehicle description, we would have been sunk. Right. We would have been sunk. And here we are, we put this together and the people were outraged in that neighborhood when they saw that, you know, one of the coveted big Elkhorn Elks Mm -hmm. was was poached. Um, So to be able to put that together, make an arrest, put somebody in jail um, was very beneficial. The person was charged, you know, several different violations, um, Spent twenty days in jail, and uh, in Montana we have a trophy restitution. This elk met the standards for trophy restitution, so trophy restitution on an elk is eight thousand dollars. Wow! So he had to pay it not only as fines but also that restitution value. Plus, he lost his hunting, fishing, and trapping privileges for I think ten years. Nice. Uh, maybe, maybe it was longer. But uh, there was a there was a sense of you know justice served. Putting that together and and just putting all those pieces on what really looked like another headless a headless critter case where right. you know, we, we, we unfortunately there's a lot more that we don't solve than we do solve mm-hmm. and and uh, to put this together and give that back to the community community and say we couldn't have done this without help from the community. It was just a real cool sequence of events and then right. to put somebody in jail over it was just icing on the cake.
1: Yeah. During the interview did they tell you that was their intent to use the so- Super Bowl as cover? No, they had no idea. Okay. So, you know, they <sighs> they, they shot that seven I'm like, a, geez, that that was pretty smart, but apparently they weren't that smart."
2: They, they weren't <laughs> using that. I yeah, they weren't using that. Um, but uh to shoot that uh that elk with a high-powered rifle in that neighborhood, that was, you know, that took that took some bravery for sure.
1: Stupidity mm. maybe
2: yeah uh, yeah that was that was an interesting case it was a fun case to work
1: yeah no and it it comes back the the super bowl bull the super bowl bull we have those antlers
2: we seize those antlers and uh, we have those displayed in our uh, headquarters yeah
1: yeah that's awesome and you know uh, we talked earlier about when when we're game wardens we don't hunt and fish quite often as much as we used to but you know that those catching those poachers become our 10 point box our our trophy elk so to speak and uh yeah, awesome, awesome case.
2: That's to put that's together. hunting for us is, is is, I'm out hunting bad guys.
1: Yep, we're no, we're I'm hunting, trying to, trying to find a bad guy. That's right, and we're constantly doing it. Absolutely. Whether we're on our day off, whether we're on our day on. Oh, it drives my wife crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Can it, you please
2: turn it off? I'm sorry, I can't turn it, can't it off. You
1: can't turn it off. You're a game warden <laughs> through and through. Absolutely. Once you start, you never stop. Yeah. So, but just just an awesome, awesome case. Yeah, that was so. That was a good case. Yeah. So, and, and like you said, community involvement, you know, I, I, I think every episode I talk about Operation Game Thief and how important it is. Um, and that's no different in Montana. In Montana,
2: it? it's, uh, you know, we call it the Tipmont program. Um, turn in a
1: poacher? Turn in a poacher. I do like that. Yeah. So. yeah, it, it, it
2: works great. Um, it gets used a ton. Mm-hmm. Um, we're expanding it. We're trying to make it more uh, recognizable, get more exposure to it. Um, and it is, um, I had a case where we had a couple of knuckleheads went out and shot a whole herd antelope. They just rolled in on, on some antelope in the dark in the snow, so the antelope couldn't you know run quickly anywhere because they're bogged down in the snow. And these uh, these two individuals bail out of the rig and then they just mowed this herd antelope down with the, mm. with the, one of them had an AR-15, the other one had a Mini-14, and they just laid into this herd antelope, killed a bunch of them, and then drove off. Roll out there to investigate that. They just shot them and left them. Shot them and left them. As I'm driving to the scene, I wasn't to the scene yet. Uh, I was just kind of over this little rise. And as I'm getting there, the sky blackened because all the birds got up. I thought, okay, I'm getting, I'm getting close. Mm. Went over, and it was just carnage. It was just these these antelope carcasses everywhere and blood trails, and just it was just <sighs> horrible. Put all that together, um, documented each individual antelope and metal detectors, and trying to find shell casings and all of this, and we we ended up with some 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 evidence, but it didn't really point us to anybody. Mm-hmm. Again, put out a press release. We got. An anonymous call through our tip program. Did did you
1: use the picture of all those dead antelope in the press release?
2: We didn't use all of them. Uh, we took some specific
1: yeah. pictures and we put those, and and I think that's what did it. I, I think so too, because I've done that before with a pile of dead deer, and yeah, it, it enrages people. It does, as it enrages us when we talk about it now. Right, I'm like,
2: I wanted to put all the pictures in there, but you know, we mm, couldn't put so much. And, right. and we ended
1: up generating a tip call out of that. And
2: uh, once we got the tip call, we did some more background work. We were able to arrest the two individuals that were going to college at the time, and uh, we rolled right into the college and we we hooked them up right in right mm, in school, right in school, and, uh, nice. Took him to jail and uh, interviewed him and they ended up confessing to everything and uh, just out being stupid. Uh, right. But you know, they they were charged with felonies for that. Mm. So that's on their record. Right. But the importance of that was that tip program, the, the, the anonymous tips are called Tipmont mm-hmm. and uh, reported this, you know, we have, you know, hundreds of these kinds of stories throughout the state of, you know, every warden's got these these stories of how crucial Tipmont and public involvement is. We can't make these cases by ourselves. No. We, we can't do it. There's no way. We'll, we'll just catch a few bad guys here and there. We need the public's involvement. We need people calling the tip hotline. We need people talking to their game wardens. Um, we need our game wardens being, you know, engaged in their community um, and promoting our tip program. The more calls we get. The the, the the better the information we get. The more bad guys we catch. And the more bad guys and the more resources we can protect. Exactly. So that's what it all comes down to is protecting your resources, my resources from the people that are trying to steal it from us.
1: Right. So, and, and as a chief, I, I think you put that up pretty high on your list of uh, things that are important as far as law enforcement goes.
2: A- absolutely. Our, our TIP program I don't think has gotten the exposure that it could get. I think we need to to broaden that i think we need to expand it mm-hmm. i
1: think we need to make
2: the program bigger and
1: better sounds like you're gonna chief we're going to it sounds like yeah, <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> it sounds gonna, like there's determination there yeah we're gonna we're gonna make it bigger we're
2: gonna make it better you know and that's uh one of the reasons that i came down to the uh, international wildlife crab Starper Conference is i wanted to see what's going on mm. i want to see what the what the other state programs are i want to see what's going on out there how can we be bigger? How can we be better? How can we be on the cutting edge of these things? How can we get um, more
1: information to make more cases? That's to we protect need. more. There's
2: so many things going on out there that, that we can't keep up with. Mm. So we need we need the public to be to be helping us with our program. And if that means expanding this program, that's what we're gonna do.
1: No, nope. I yeah. think that's a that's a nice nice goal to have, and I think it'll be extremely effective. And yeah. you you just started another program that that kind of caught my interest the uh, the license fraud program. Can you can you share and tell us about that? Because it's the first time I've heard about that, and uh, I think everybody will be interested in, in hearing about it. Yeah, it's pretty
2: it's pretty interesting. So with Montana having,
1: I will say it's not sexy. Okay,
2: it's definitely not sexy. <laughs> But with Montana having such coveted wildlife hunting opportunities, and there's such a, a a difference between a what a resident can buy versus a non-resident, like in just about every every mm-hmm. state, people will figure out ways to cheat the system so that they can buy resident licenses um, and then hunt as residents. Well, we we always you know focus on those types of uh, that that, ty- that type of criminal behavior, but we. We we uh, it's kind of a, a collateral duty to our wardens or a collateral duty to our, our investigators is to go after the the high end
1: what we call license fraud mm-hmm. violations that are occurring out there. When you say collateral duty, it's kind of a pain in the butt for them, 'em isn't it? It can be, yeah. It can be. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of work and it's you a know, lot of work,
2: it's a lot of sitting at the computer, mm-hmm. you know, doing research and, and digging up stuff. Not really
1: where you want your wardens.
2: No, we want a warden in the field working. Mm-hmm. So but this is, a, this is important because these people are coming in and violating or, uh, you know, um, unlawfully purchasing licenses while you've got most non-residents doing it the right way. Mm-hmm. So you've got this, these few that are doing it the wrong way. Well, we need to target that because they're stealing the wildlife. So we came up with an idea that is, is there a way that we can concentrate some enforcement effort in that direction? We've, we've often talked about can we have a dedicated position to just look into this, this type of thing. Mm-hmm. It's been a little bit difficult to get, to get rolling, but one of the key things that, that helped us is, is in Montana, our Department of Revenue and our Fish, Wildlife, and Parks Department can share information. So we know who's filing uh, resident or non-resident taxes, and we know who's buying resident and non-resident licenses. Huh. So when we cross-reference those things and they don't match, Red flags. It'll kick information out that either this person is committing tax fraud or this person is committing license fraud. Mm. And it's not 100% accurate all the time. There might be an extenuating circumstance. That's Mm -hmm. fine. We weed through that. Right. But we have been able to collect uh, millions of dollars in back taxes for the state of Montana. And we've been able to cite and uh, prosecute dozens and dozens of people for license fraud. So. Now, and this is before we have a a, a dedicated position for this. This is just, we're just hitting the surface. Well, now we uh, do have the resources to commit a position to this. So we're going to do that. As a matter of fact, we're just starting it this month. Um, We're going to have a full-time license fraud investigator. That's all they're going to do is just dive into license fraud and tax fraud, work with our Department of Revenue, and try to dig deeper down into these cases because you know that if you catch one person, there's 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 a wake of people behind them that are either associated with them mm. or that know of them, and maybe it's been going on for years.
1: And they're doing the same thing.
2: They're doing the same thing, and you know that they're they're uh, they're uh, shooting animals. Mm-hmm. You know that they're taking them home. You know they're hanging on their walls wherever mm-hmm. they're from. So we're going to chase those animals down. We're going to chase as many bad guys down as we can. And we're going to start with the license fraud investigation. And wherever that leads us, that's where we're going to go. And if I have to send wardens out of state or investigators out of state to other states, do interviews and and, and work, that's what we're going to do. So we're we're, we're going to take this real serious. um, And, uh, you know, if it broadens into a bigger program, it does. If it stays as just a single dedicated investigator, that's fine, too. Um, I have lots of investigators out across the state. They can all help with this endeavor. Mm -hmm. But uh, having this one dedicated position, um, I think it's going to just pay pay dividends i think it's uh it's definitely not on the surface a very
1: sexy position
2: right but i think it's got potential of being absolutely groundbreaking
1: H- huge deterrent huge you know Huge deterrent and, and that, now you're going to go back and i gotta imagine if it's tax fraud or license fraud guess what license fraud here license fraud
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you want to be in trouble with us or the uh, Department of Revenue?
1: Exactly. I'll wheel my trophies into you because I, that's exactly who I don't want to come after Right, the, the Internal Revenue Service. So. And,
2: and uh, you know, that cooperative agreement and the cooperative relationship we have with the Department of Revenue is mm. is crucial. You know, we don't get to see the numbers. We just get to see are they filing as a, a resident or a non-resident. Right. We don't see any of the tax return. We don't right. care about that. Right. We just want to know, did you file as a resident or a non-resident?
1: Right. So and when then, they're paying taxes a non-resident, they're buying resident licenses, flag, that's investigation right. incurs, and then you guys figure it out from there.
2: And then we figure out, do you want to be <laughs> cited by us
1: or yeah. the tax folks? Wow. And, and I totally understand because it's such a coveted place to hunt, to fish, to get those trophy animals uh, that probably a lot of people think that's a, a great way to do it to get it a, a cheap cheap way to do it and i imagine your residents have bet- better benefits of getting better tags or
2: there yeah, there's a lot of opportunities that are afforded residents over non-residents mm-hmm. so by design i think mm-hmm. that's the way every state yep. ultimately, I, I would agree. ultimately operates so there's an incentive there to well I I own some property in Montana, so technically I can be a resident. So I'm just going to use that property and get a P.O. box number, call myself a resident, even though I may live somewhere else in mm. the country. Um, that's how it starts. Yep. And then that person's buddy might use their address also. And then it just keeps rolling, and then it broadens. And that's just a simple way of doing it. But, you know, there's all kinds of different loopholes that people will use to uh, circumvent the system just to be able to buy mm. a resident license. because it's a get drawing, those privileges. It's a drawing opportunity for non-residents where a mm-hmm. resident can just buy something over the counter. Gotcha. Um, and there's some opportunities that are, just aren't available for non-residents.
1: Right. So just so move to Montana, you'll be all set. Move to Montana. Well, we don't want too many people moving. <laughs> we're, we're good. I think there's a sign at the border that says we're full. Uh, and, and I always, you know, fishing, I always, I, I hate to say downplay it, but I forget about fishing, but Montana, you know, those, beautiful rivers come cutting through those mountains and fish have got to be just as important resource as the big game animals. Fishing is incredible in Montana.
2: We've got I would say arguably the best fishing in the country. Mm. The Missouri River, you know, runs right through the heart of Montana. All the tributaries, the Yellowstone River, all of the, all of these rivers, all of these streams, the diversity of fish on whether you're on the east or the west side of the continental divide, it's just incredible an incredible fisheries habitat, uh, warm water fish, cold water fish, just about everything you can think of. Um, Mm. everything from paddle fish, you know, to little stream brook trout, it's just incredible fishing opportunity from one end of the state to the other. It really is fascinating.
1: It makes me want to go just the your description. Then I'm like, yeah, that's how my next trip to Montana. So any, you know, through your career, any fishing, any fishing, uh, things that stick out in your head as far as cases. And you know, there's, uh,
2: Oh, there's just a, there's a, there's a ton of things that a warden experiences with fishing. I was fortunate enough to, to work up in East Northeast Montana around Fort Peck reservoir up there and that warm water fisheries up there. And that was, that was enlightening to me. And uh, then back down in, in uh, Western Montana, working along the Missouri river area in, in particular, I remember uh, one case. It's always fun to try to make, how can I make a, make a good case, a good fishing case. Uh, when you're looking at a group of anglers that are fishing and uh you know, somebody somebody just attracts your interest for some reason, and you start watching that person. And uh, that happened with some anglers that I was watching. And, they looked like they were from the city, didn't they? Uh, they they looked like they were just you know one of those things just doesn't belong. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if it was their tactics or or what their but, gear, or uh, <laughs> something that gave it away. So I started watching them, and I could clearly see that uh, you know there's there was a slot limit in this section of the river where you know you had to put everything back that was over 18 inches i could clearly see they weren't
1: doing that they were yeah. catching some big fish They're catching huh? some big fish and
2: that's just a it's a it's a place where big fish live
1: it's mm-hmm. a it's a great river so they were keeping it's surf casting rods didn't they
2: oh they had some yeah you know, <laughs>
1: you, know you know you know what you know what i'm talking about. i know what you're talking about
2: <laughs> so they were uh they were catching and they were catching and keeping when most of the people around them are catching and releasing so mm-hmm. uh they were and, and don't
1: those other fishermen notice that don't they they do yeah they do, yep. they do.
2: And uh, so I go down there to check these, these fellows. And uh, I thought to myself, how can I, how can I get this, this done pretty, uh, pretty quickly? I, you know, I want to, I want to see in, you know, what, what they've caught, mm-hmm. keep it friendly and, and uh, start with a uh, start that way. So I approached them and I asked them, uh, you guys are having any luck? Oh yeah, we, we've, we've caught some fish. And I, and I agreed with them. I said, yeah, I saw you catching some fish. Those look like some beauties. What do you say? We, uh, we get a picture of you and your fish together. I'd love to have a picture of you guys and your fish. And they ate it up. So they drug out all of their illegal fish, or this, the stringer. Not only were they catching slot-limit fish, but then they also had just a blatant over-limit of fish. So the the two anglers uh, stretched their stringer out. I got back with my camera, and I says, all right, smile for the camera. And they're holding up their illegal fish, and I'm taking evidence pictures at the same time. Oh, and, uh, good. So it was just a classic deal. I still have that picture to this day. and it, the great. Gr- the grins on their faces are just yeah. great. Um, and
1: then when you tell them it's all illegal, I bet the, the frowns turned upside, or the smiles turned upside down to frowns. Yeah, so. yeah, I
2: says all right. Let's talk about the regulations now, and uh, you know <sighs> that's where it went downhill. So uh, we ended up to season those fish and uh, write some citations there. But you know those 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 things happen. Those things happen.
1: So. And, and you know those other fishermen appreciate it so much. The, the time was getting applause from other fishermen when you when you catch the guy that's you know. It's catch and release, and they've been taking them all day. And you show up, and you know now you're writing a ticket. And I've had people, other fishermen along the river, applaud. and start clapping.
2: Absolutely. You know, most of the people are out there doing things right. Right. You know, exactly. they're doing things right. They just want to enjoy themselves. I'm a firm believer that honest people do make honest mistakes. Absolutely. That's fine. We're in the education business, and that's what we should be doing is educating those folks. Mm-hmm. Not everybody needs a ticket. Right. Some people do. Mm-hmm. Some people need to go to jail. But not everybody needs a ticket. Honest people make honest mistakes, and most of the people out there are doing things the right way. Right. That's what I think about. You know, I used to think about when I was out in the field is I am here for them. I am mm-hmm. taking care of this this poaching incident or this overlimit incident or this bad guy here because those people over there that are doing it right deserve that. They they deserve for me to be taking care of the things that uh, need to be taken care of. Mm. You know, um, because you know, as as a parent. Um, I want my kids to be able to experience the things I've experienced and somebody has to be out there protecting that and taking care of that. And right. I've always looked at that as, that's a game warden's job. Absolutely. Promote the good and take care of the bad.
1: Yeah. And you so, got some pretty remote game wardens in Montana, I would imagine. Like yeah. Population one maybe in the county here. <laughs> we've got some, we've got, I think on if we had to put an average on it, I think on
2: average our warden districts are about 2,000 square miles. Mm. Um, some of the districts are a little bit smaller. But they're more populated, right. so you have a lot more Complaints. interactions with people. Some of the warden districts are incredibly enormous with fewer people, but it's a lot of country to cover.
1: Right. So there's, And how many other law enforcement people live in that area as well? Yeah, you know, some of these... I mean, I think of backup.
2: Some of these warden districts, you've got your deputy sheriff, your highway patrolman, and your game warden, You know, and that's it. And that's it. And that's it. Some of our bigger counties... You obviously have a bigger sheriff's office and a police department, mm-hmm. things like that. But some of our smaller counties, smaller warden districts, boy, there's just not much there. Right. And then even in the in the places where we might have some uh, more strategically located law enforcement help, they they always can't get to to where we're at. Right. You know, we're driving four wheel drive three quarter ton trucks up in the mountains. Mm-hmm. They're driving a dog. And then you're Charger. taking a
1: horse on the, over the next ridge too. Right. So that well. you know,
2: there's there's times that they, just because we have. Law enforcement available to us, they can't often help us because of our remote locations and where we're at. Oftentimes they can, but not always. So just the remoteness of of um, Montana and and some of the remoteness of our districts. Um, You know, Montana is the fourth biggest state in in, in the nation, and we have on the ground about about eighty game wardens. Mm. That's certainly not very many. No, to to cover that entire not for
1: the fourth largest state. It's huge, yeah, it's and I, huge. I bet those other three states have uh, quite a few more game wardens than Montana. I would imagine. Yeah,
2: California is one of them. And I know they got a ton of ton of game wardens. They got a ton of. game But we don't wardens. want that population. No,
1: and, and that's population. right. With population comes other responsibilities. Absolutely, because when people come in conflict, whether it's wildlife or incidents, it people create the work. It's because if we left the game alone, we wouldn't have any job. That's right. You know, it's the interaction, whether it's poaching, whether it's animal relationships, you know, the bears getting sure. into the garbage and, you know, and and do you ever have grizzlies getting into the garbage?
2: Oh, we have grizzly bear problems all the time. Really? Western Montana, we've got a growing grizzly bear population, you know, from the north coming down to the south and then obviously from the south coming from that Yellowstone area further north. So we, we're having an increasing number of grizzly bear problems. We are trapping a lot of grizzly bears and trying to move them. A lot of conflict bears. We're putting bears down because there's just no place to put them.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, We have... um, Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. A handful of human interactions
2: with grizzly bears every year, where you know somebody will get injured or, in some cases, killed by by grizzly bears. So we have an, a severely increasing grizzly bear problem that is it's growing, and you know the state is going to have to come to a a point where, you know, we're going to have to begin to manage these, the bears as a, as a huntable species. But right now, you know, they're still on the endangered species list. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have to work with uh, the state of Idaho and the state of Wyoming to work through all of this. So there's, it's, it's kind of coming to a head now and I think we're going to see it probably get a little bit worse before it gets any better. Uh, But we, we definitely have a a grizzly bear problem and Mm -hmm. we've, we've always had a, a robust black bear population. I wouldn't call it a robust black bear problem because we can we can hunt black bear over the
1: counter so, so. you can manage that population through at the least managed yeah yeah
2: and and of course with no federal oversight on black bears it makes it a lot easier to manage mm-hmm. it by the state
1: is there a process starting to delist the grizzlies in those areas or is it just starting
2: no there, there there's been
1: ongoing litigation ongoing problems mm-hmm. ongoing ongoing this
2: ongoing that you know our agency attorneys are are definitely involved in and, and trying to work through all of these compl- this complicated process.
1: Stand- and in the interim, we have conflicts. grizzly conflicts.
2: We have grizzly conflicts, and we have we're pretty good at managing the conflicts.
1: Mm-hmm. But is what, it usually a people problem, or you know, grizzly's getting associated with people? Or
2: I think, well, it is to a certain extent. I think it's a just a population problem where mm-hmm. we run out of places to put bears. Yes, you know, bears gotcha. will come out and they'll get in trouble. Well trap them, we'll tag them, we'll take them someplace else, and, you know, that's a 50-50 chance or whether mm-hmm. whether that's going to work or not. Right. And then if they end up in a problem again, you know, we uh, have to make that tough call about putting the bear down.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's not always uh, the, the most popular decision, but you really run out of options real quick. Right. You know, and that's – those are things that our, our wildlife division, more of our biologists and our bear specialists uh, deal with. Enforcement guys, you know, we help out on that as much mm-hmm. as we can. But those, those are things that are handled mostly by the wildlife division. Yep. So –
1: well, that's good. Except, except on the weekends, I'm sure that's when the game warden gets. It's the called. game warden becomes a bear expert. <laughs> <laughs> game wardens are experts in everything on the weekends. <laughs> oh, you know when I th- think about those remote officers and working like that. You know, we, we talked about in the line of duty deaths, and I, I, I could tell right away when you brought that up that you know you you get it. It's a soft spot for you. So,
2: yeah, line of duty deaths. That's that's always a. You know, a, a tough one. And uh, Montana game wardens, you know, we've lost officers. Mm. We've lost nine officers total since the, the inception of Montana game wardens. You know, the first one we lost was uh, Warden uh, Peyton back in 1901. The last one we, we lost was uh, uh, Warden Gene Sarah in Thompson Falls, Montana. And that was in the 70s. So knock on wood, we haven't lost any anyone in the line of duty since. But still, it's such a dangerous job that we do. Everybody that we deal with is armed. Mm. You know, as a game warden, you're going to go out there and you're going to interact with hunters and fishermen in out in the wilderness, out in the woods, out next to a river somewhere. Else. Most people are going to be armed, carrying a pistol or a rifle or a shotgun for whatever reason they're doing it. So it's a, it's a dangerous job. We're by ourselves, remote locations, no backup. Sometimes the communications are a little hinky. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just a dangerous job. We've uh, we've lost nine officers, which is the second most in the state of Montana of all the agencies. Mm-hmm. Um it's definitely not a, a record that we're looking to set. It's no. nothing that we're proud of, but uh, it's. I think it it's illustrative of the dangers of the work that we do.
1: So, and as a chief, it's always on your mind. It's
2: constantly on my mind. It, it's sooner or later,
1: it's going to happen again, at some point.
2: It is, and it, it, it's nerve wracking because you want to be prepared for it, and I don't know if you ever can be prepared for it. We've mm-hmm. we've put some things in place here recently where we have some protocols. Um, kind of a go-to book or a manual that uh, supervisors can use to quickly manage an incident. Right. If it happens, we've kind of, we used uh, some of what Maine put together and some of the other states have put together. And unfortunately, a lot of times those things are put together, you know, after they have an incident. Right. What we're trying to do is have something put together before we have an incident. Mm-hmm. Smart. Um, and I, and I think we have really good protocol put together. It's not perfect, but it'll help manage the incident so that we can at least get through it. So that's, that's, what we're looking at officer safety is primary on my my radar i want i want my wardens being safe i want you know the safest working working conditions we can provide for them knowing that by default it's a dangerous job that's and, where we're at
1: and some of these montana wardens you you referenced died in a gun battle
2: we had two the uh the the first warden we lost was uh was killed in a gun battle up in the swan and then uh warden gene sarah he was uh killed in a. Uh, gunfight in Thompson Falls, backing up a deputy on a domestic disturbance. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was before, believe it or not, in the seventies, in when Warden Sarah was killed, that was before wardens carried guns. So he had a gun, but it was behind the seat in his truck. Uh, so as he rolled up on this, this uh, assist with the deputy sheriff, there was some shots fired. So he went to his vehicle to get his gun. And as he's trying to get his gun out, he was shot. So again, after the fact is when game warden started carrying guns. Hmm. Yeah, that was a tragic event. Uh, we have a, mem- a memorial shooting competition in honor of Warden Sarah every year. So the nice. wardens all do a competitive shoot, and uh, it's just a way to honor his memory. and Carries and on his name. It, it really does. It really does. So, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: And, and it also remember, r- reminds those game wardens that this is a dangerous job. Reminds the public that this is a dangerous job. We carry guns for a reason. We're put in dangerous situations, on a constant basis because we are the police in the woods we respond to those we back up officers they back us up i don't think the public really understands how dangerous a game warden's job is because i think statistically the fbi comes out with their stats and you know the conservation law seems to be on the higher end of in the line of incidents with firearms and mm-hmm. you know assaults and i think you hit all those points remote working just the type that when we have to have that conflict, it, it's there, it's sometimes caught in the act, so there's there's a lot of things that roll into that put us on that edge and dealing with armed people on a constant basis and I
2: think I think uh, one of the things that helps us there is gay wardens are really good at talking to people. Mm. <clears throat> you know we uh, a lot of times we're not being called to the scene of a uh, of a crime or a, uh, there's not a crime in progress and there's a lot of times we are just making a contact. Mm-hmm. Um, where we are just inserting ourselves into somebody's recreational day. Mm-hmm. And we're carrying on a conversation with them, and we get really good at communicating and talking with the public and doing that whole community policing type of approach to things.
1: And reading people, reading body language.
2: Really, we really do. And, mm-hmm. and I think that when we have a violation or a situation that's going to maybe escalate, uh, wardens by default and by training and by experience, I think are really good at de-escalating that some better than others. But I think we have overall, I think wards are really good at managing a situation verbally, which prevents, you know, things from escalating to a to a physical assault. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've seen that time and time again, where you might not have that experience with, a, say, a city police officer, or sheriff's deputy, where things could escalate, right. where a warden is out there by himself. And, you know, they have to think, you know i've got to keep this under control cuz there's right. nobody to help me mm-hmm. so we developed uh you know our 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 verbal verbal skills to a point where we can control a situation and i think that that has helped prevent uh officer assaults
1: right it still
2: happened but it's
1: and you must have been around when that verbal judo came out because i went to some of those classes and it it was the stuff that we already did as game wardens because we had that oh yeah that interaction with people and we knew how to de escalate situations and you know, and now they're teaching police officers probably because they don't spend as much time interacting with people, they go to a call, they have to address the call and then they move on. Right. So trying to give the skills that the game warden had to the police officer, those verbal judos. And I think we've gone away from it because I don't remember a verbal judo class anytime recently.
2: No, I I know exactly what you're saying. And, and the whole community policing concept when they talk about, well, we're going to shift, you know, urban law enforcement to a more community policing way of doing things and interacting with the community and, and, and being involved with the community. And I'm thinking, you mean like game wardens do? <laughs> <laughs> you mean like we've been doing for years? Right. You know, I mean, we're the we're the epitome of community policing. That's mm-hmm. what we do. Right. We we, we, we contact people. We, we interact with people um, without having being called to an incident. Right. That's called
1: community policing, and it's what we've been doing for years, and it's our bread and butter. Yeah, and it, and it deters violators because they know your reputation. They know you, and... There was a study done. I think it was for the University of Wisconsin where they they interviewed early shooting duck hunters and the ones that didn't shoot early. And a lot of the reason was because of their interaction with the local game warden. It's like you know I, I see him at the softball games. You know I I couldn't do that because I couldn't look him at the eye if I was you know right. violating the law. I remember so. a
2: couple of incidents where where uh, you know once you're once you're the warden for long enough, some of the you know uh, eleven and twelve year olds mm. that you might have in a hunter education class. All of a sudden, you encounter them, you know, ten years later out in the field after they may have committed a violation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've had this happen where I recognize a name and I look at them and I said, "Didn't I have you in Hunter Ed class?" Yeah. And the disappointment on their faces that they just let me down, mm-hmm. you know, is priceless because mm-hmm. it's not about that they're going to get a ticket; it's that they let the game warden down. Yep. You know, and that's that's meaningful. That's impactful. They still made a, a dumb mistake, or mm-hmm. maybe it was a mistake, but it's impactful when you can when you can interact with. With uh, you know the future hunters at at that age and make that you know that that impact on their thought process, so that's very yeah. important. That's we're in the education business, we're in the uh, community policing business. That's yeah. what we do.
1: So, so you did get the right degree there, Chief.
2: I, I think I did. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's coming handy. Yeah, but, and I, I can see that you had a passion for that hunter education too, and to teach those people on h- how to do things right and to to, to interject those fishing game laws so that they did things right. How many times have we seen new hunters out in the field?
2: 12, 13 year old hunters with no mentor. Mm. You know, the people that are teaching them are definitely not in all cases the people that should be teaching them how to hunt. Right. There's more to hunting than shooting an animal. We've all said that in our hunter education classes. We need to talk about conservation. We need to talk about the the animal. We need to talk about everything that leads up to you pulling the trigger and then Mm. everything that happens after you pull the trigger. There's just so many things to it. And I know that kids out there aren't all given the opportunity to learn that information mm. so that's why hunter education is so so important and that we teach and talk about the right things in hunter education and that we interact with those kids and we put them on the right track so maybe it will help prevent them from making a mistake down the road
1: yeah and some of these trends i know where you're where, i think i know your opinion with online hunter ed and do the field day uh you got an opinion on that that you could actually say (laughs) (laughs) you know field days are important i
2: love the field days when we get the kids in the field and we can actually show them stuff on the on Mm -hmm. the ground i think that's great online hunter ed you know you just don't get the same experience we're we're losing something aren't we 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 really are you don't have Mm -hmm. that interaction um when we can do the classroom and the game warden can walk around and, and, and and talk to the kids um, and then and then hang out with them on the field day. Mm-hmm. You know that's there's just something to that. There is, and and I think that's really important. The, the online hunter ed, I you know I think that's I think that's that that's fine, and and I think that there's probably a place for that. But you, you just have to realize that we are losing something. We are losing when something. We do that you know, sure.
1: and we got to weigh out in the long term. We got to look at the benefits versus you know, are we getting more poaching because then we're not having any of that interaction? Right. Are we having more? Hunting incidents because we're, we're we're doing it online and we're trying to fast stream everything. And one of the one of the
2: problems that I know that Montana runs into is our hunter education program is based solely on volunteers. Mm. You know, our hunter ed instructors are all volunteers, right? Um, and they are they're dedicated. Mm-hmm. There's not enough of them. Um, mm. It takes a special kind of person to to be able to to do that. Right. And um, so it's it's a volunteer program, so you don't always get. You know the amount of people that you need. Maybe you don't get the the the
1: type of people that you need. And that online's kind of filling that void. So online fills the void yeah. exactly. So yeah, no, that that's a positive yeah. sign to it. So, but I was I'm involved in hunter safety as well, and I oh, it's important. I, yeah, absolutely. so important. Hey, anything else you want you want to say? Because uh, we're we're wrapping up here. Uh, well, one thing I got on the notes that I'd like to talk about is, is fire, because on the east uh, east coast, fire isn't really doesn't really affect us and uh you know and it, I've been out west when there's fire watches and fires close. I, I get, I'm pretty dang nervous about that stuff and uh you guys deal with that on, on a real basis and uh it's something I don't have any experience with so
2: sure sure it gets it can get a little nerve-wracking uh when it dries out and we start getting into drought conditions um that timber dries out and the forest dries out and the grasses dry out we end up with fires we've already had fires this year nothing mm-hmm. major you know, knock on wood. We've had a real, real uh, wet spring. We had good snowfall last winter. and We've had a wet summer so far. So, those are all good things. Um, Montana game wardens aren't, you know, directly involved in actual firefighting efforts or activities, but we do supplement and assist the Forest Service or the Department of Natural Resources or other agencies with either security or roadblocks. Mm-hmm. We we help out where we can. We supplement other sheriff's offices when if they're doing some traffic control things like that. So. We do have some agreements in place. Uh, we try to work where we can to help the other agencies.
1: Everybody's spread thin, so certainly our, it probably affects the wildlife and where you work and how you work. It affect
2: it, it. does affect the wildlife. You know, that's not a, a major consideration when it comes to to, to fires. You know, their mm-hmm. wildlife is pretty adaptable. Okay, so they can they can move
1: around and do what they need to do.
2: Really what we're at that point when we're helping out with fires is really just a public safety okay. thing that we we're, we're involved and
1: fire's a natural thing in montana
2: fire's a very natural thing in one, well not all fires not all
1: fires okay sometimes some
2: the they're unnaturally set by you know stupidity, but uh, mm-hmm. a lot of them are natural lightning caused fires um a lot of them are man made man caused fires we've had right. we've had them both so uh, we assist where we can mm hmm so
1: yeah. Oh, that was just something I'm not familiar with. I thought we'd try to ch- chat about. But uh, anytime you want to come out and hang out in the smokes filled Montana, no, I, I'm all set with fire. Yeah, I bet man. you. Are. <laughs> I am. Uh, no, uh, You know, my first experience this this fall was uh, hunting in Colorado, and there was a fire just before it, so everything I scouted was closed to start, oh. which wasn't real. I wasn't real happy about, but sure. I found a way around. I had to go back into Wyoming and back into Colorado in order okay. to hunt, but I got it on open roads, so that that was important, okay. and I got Good. to where I scouted. So. Good when you put all that time and all that effort in and then they close the roads on you the week before, it's just, uh, yeah, I wasn't real happy. We, so that's uh, not a big fan of fire.
2: We've had that happen a few times where it's gotten so dry that a lot of uh, you know property owners in Montana will start shutting their property down mm. to uh, hunting. They don't want anybody on their ground because it's just too dangerous.
1: Right. Because a lot of hunters camp. A
2: lot of hunters camp. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't take much right to to get a fire going so
1: no 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 doubt so so i'll put it back in your court do you think we covered everything i mean i just uh you made me want to come to montana
2: (laughs) (laughs) montana is a great place i love what i do the game wardens that uh, work in the state of montana they love what they do we've i think arguably have the best game wardens in the country in montana uh whenever we recruit we have just a an enormous list of applicants that apply wow Um, so we have a good pool to select from we're just real fortunate to have the wardens that we have on the ground working right now. Uh, I, I think I think Wayne, if there was one thing I wanted to to get out there is how important it is for people to understand how dangerous game warden work is. Mm. It's incredibly rewarding, selfishly rewarding in some some ways, mm-hmm. but it's also dangerous. And, and I think that sometimes the public may see us as the uh, the the friendly conservation guy and mm-hmm. don't really understand how how. How important or how dangerous that that law enforcement work is that we do, and and how the people that some, we sometimes interact with are the exact same people that a sheriff's officer or a police department are, are interacting with. Drugs and you know bad people and all those things are encroaching into the conservation world. Right. So it's just I I guess I want people to understand that uh, when we're out there doing our work, we're out there to protect wildlife and mm-hmm. protect uh, the Montana resources, but. The, the things that are out there that are dangerous are slowly creeping into that world. Right. And I think it'll be becoming a bigger, bigger part of it. You know, I think conservation law enforcement across the country is going to start seeing more and more of that I know some of the bigger popular, populated states have seen an increase in, uh, you know, certain wildlife trafficking events, drug trafficking, human trafficking. There's just a lot of that stuff that's going on out there. So uh, while we're out there doing conservation law enforcement, protecting Montana's wildlife and resources always on the back of our mind are all these other things that, that, that are creeping slowly creeping into that conservation world. So just something that we need to be aware
1: of. Right. Well said. And uh, this is, Dave Lowen, very, very passionate, very proud of uh, Montana game wardens. And he's the chief of law enforcement in Montana. And what a pleasure, Dave, to sit down and talk to you and, and get all those stories. The the Super Bowl bull will always be in my mind from now on. Just to get a feel for Montana. Yeah. Sometimes I wish I had relocated a little. It's just, it'll always be right next to Alaska. Now you put it a little bit above Alaska. So Well,
2: it's good. It's been, it's been absolutely my pleasure. And I absolutely appreciate this opportunity, Wayne. Appreciate it.
1: Great. Thank you. Please join me, game warden Wayne Saunders, and other game wardens on our adventures, protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experience of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden. Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch.
0: Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasin' the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. One of the most legendary shows in the outdoors is on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Primo's Truth About Hunting, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.